This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. Joining me today is Ms. Katie Berg, Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, to discuss SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Katie, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having me. Ms. Berg's, oh, you're welcome. Ms. Berg's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, likely the most important legislation that Congress will pass this year or this session is the multi-year farm bill that is projected to cost $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. A significant component of farm bill legislation is Title IV that addresses nutrition assistance, namely, again, SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, that serves 42 million Americans, including one in every four children. SNAP benefits were expanded during the COVID pandemic for fairly obvious reasons, As of two months ago, however, enhanced SNAP benefits expired. Presently, congressional Republicans are looking to cut SNAP programming by weaponizing the debt ceiling vote. It is important to note as well, food prices over the past three years have increased significantly, due in part to the ongoing climate crisis. Per the USDA, food at-home prices increased 3.5% in 2020 and 21 for 11.4% rather in 22 and are projected to increase by 6.6% in 23. Joining me today to discuss the SNAP program is again the Center for Budget and Policy Parties, Katie Berg. Finally, listeners may recall I interviewed CBPP's Joseph Lobrera on March 10, 2020 regarding the Trump administration's proposed SNAP program cuts. So that is background, uh, Katie. Let's just start with a generic question. If you could give me, say, an overview of the state of hunger or food uh, security uh, in the U.S., that would be very helpful. Yeah, of course. Um, So this is actually a very interesting story, and I think a good place to start is um, looking back before the pandemic in 2019. Um, In 2019, about 10% of U.S. households experienced food insecurity, which is the common measure that researchers use um, to describe um, lack of sufficient food and essentially means that someone in that household struggled to afford enough food for an active, healthy life. Um, and what's pretty remarkable is that the overall measure of household food insecurity was statistically unchanged from the 2019 pre-pandemic level when you look at 2020 and 2021. Um, in 2020 and 2021, uh, that measure held steady at around 10% of U.S. households. Um, now, that, that overall measure does mask some nuance. Um, certain types of households fared better or worse at different points during COVID. Um, and I would certainly argue that 10% of households experiencing food insecurity is still too high. Um, but that's a pretty remarkable testament to the effectiveness of the relief measures that were put in place in response to the pandemic. So even with very significant economic turmoil, um, food insecurity did not markedly increase. And that really contrasts with what happened during the Great Recession, where the prevalence of food insecurity increased pretty significantly. Um, We're not going to know if that trend held steady during 2022 until we see that annual food insecurity data released um, in September. 
Um, but some of the data that we do have is pretty worrisome and suggests that more people are struggling to afford food. Um, for example, the U.S. Census Bureau collects um, less detailed weekly data on food insufficiency, which is a different measure than food insecurity. Um, and that has shown some concerning trends, especially now that, as you mentioned, some of the pandemic measures in SNAP have either expired or are phasing out. Um, I also add anecdotally, if you talk to people in the emergency feeding system who run food banks and food pantries, they will absolutely tell you that they are really struggling to keep up with demand at this point in time. Thank you. In fact, uh, we volunteer at a at a pantry, and uh, I can attest to that personally. I, I do appreciate your note. The data was remarkable through the pandemic in that and throwing the child tax credit, there are other uh, reasons from uh, early 2020 congressional legislation. Um, but you answered my second question, and that uh, SNAP, enhanced SNAP funding was, was, and other related measures were very helpful in that, strangely, despite the effect the pandemic had on the economy, poverty rates actually went down, which is the first time I think uh, that's ever happened in history relative to other or related experiences. Uh, to the macro economy. So uh, point well taken. Let me go to, uh, so this past December, the Congress passed legislation uh, that explains this food cliff or that enhanced funding uh, expired in February. So can you explain uh, what was in the December a legislative package as it relates to uh, the current state of the SNAP program? And then we'll go SNAP program moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there have actually been lots of changes in SNAP over the last several years in response to COVID. Um, and describing how the program has changed since March 2020 is really complicated. Um, but in essence, policymakers made a whole host of changes to respond to increased need during COVID that um, in general made benefits available to more people, um, made accessing benefits easier, um, and made the benefits that were being provided more generous. And the most significant pandemic change was a temporary boost in the benefits that household received called emergency allotments mm -hmm. that gave every SNAP household either the maximum benefit for their household size or $95 a month, whichever was greater. And that's the, the cliff that you are referencing. Um, that's what ended following the legislation passed in December. Um, so when Congress passed that policy back in March of 2020, they made it an option that states could continue to request on a monthly basis um, those extra benefits as long as the federal um, public health emergency for COVID-19 was in place and the state also had a state-level emergency declaration in effect. And most states continue to request those additional benefits throughout 2020, 2021, 2021 and 2020, 20, the too many 2020s, 2022, um, with a few limited exceptions. Um, but again, back in December, Congress made the decision to end those ad additional benefits after the February 2023 issuance, even though the federal public health emergency was still effect, um, in effect at the time. It just ended um, earlier in May. So at that point, um, 32 states plus um, D.C., um, Guam and the U.S. Virgin Islands um, were also were still providing those additional SNAP benefits, um, which meant that about 31 million of the 42 million people who participate in SNAP saw a pretty sig uh, significant and substantial decrease in the benefits that they received starting in March of this year. So every SNAP household in those 35 jurisdictions um, 
will, we're receiving at least $95 a month less in SNAP benefits. And that works out to um, about a $90 per month per person decrease on average. So with the loss of those additional benefits, the average per person SNAP benefit went from about $9 a day to about $6 per person per day. So that's a pretty significant decrease in households purchasing power for food. Um, and in fact, the Census Bureau has actually looked at their household pulse survey data recently and found that staff households in the states that had opted out of providing those additional benefits early consistently reported higher levels of food insufficiency than SNAP households in the states that were still providing those extra benefits. But now that those extra benefits have ended nationwide, those levels of food insufficiency have pretty much converged to basically identical levels. And now about one in four SNAP households is reporting that they sometimes or often did not have enough to eat in the last seven days. So that's very concerning. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. So the uh, the enhanced benefits were sunset in December legislation. And I'll cite here your co-authored uh, CBPP memo, February 6th, in which you explained the deal was in December that the Democrats got uh, created the permanent summer electronic benefit transfer program to provide grocery benefits to replace school meals for 30 million children in low families when schools are closed in the summer. And for that, they agreed to sunset uh, before, as you say, the public health emergency ended, uh, the enhanced, um, or as you phrase it uh, in the vernacular, EAs or emergency allotments. Let's go to, since this program is presently on the bubble literally today, uh, the president is meeting with the House Majority Leader. Um, moving forward, let's talk about what we expect may happen. So let's start with the Republicans, as I suggested. They passed legislation late April relative to the debt ceiling. That include uh, several provisions uh, relative to um, subsidizing certain programming for the poor, uh, what did the House Republicans propose relative to SNAP in their April bill? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, back in April, House Republicans passed a, um, a bill to address the debt ceiling and make some, some other policy changes. And that bill included three harmful policy changes to SNAP. Um, the first would expand SNAP's existing harsh work reporting requirement. So currently in SNAP, adults aged um, 18 to 49 without children in their homes can only receive SNAP benefits for three months unless they can document they are working for at least 20 hours per week, or they can prove they qualify for an exemption, um, such as having a disability. And House Republicans' bill would expand that requirement to apply to older adults through the age of 55. Um, numerous studies have shown that SNAP's work reporting requirement does not actually increase employment or earnings. Um, but it is very effective at getting people caught up in bureaucratic red tape and cutting people off of the program. Um, and indeed, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that that policy would cut an average of 275,000 people off of benefits every month if it were to become law. Um, the second thing that the bill does in SNAP would limit states' ability to use what are called um, discretionary or percentage exemptions. Um, and states use those exemptions to keep vulnerable people who are subject to the work reporting requirement temporarily connected to benefits. Um, so Republicans included a policy that um, impacts how many exemptions um, that states can carry over into 
um, subsequent fiscal years. It's very complicated, but the bottom line is that it would um, further hamstring states' ability to respond to individual-specific needs or to unique labor market challenges in particular areas, um, like if a manufacturing uh, plant closed in their state and lots of people were out of work. Um, the third thing it does is added some language to the statutory purpose of SNAP, which is currently about ensuring that low-income households can afford adequate nutrition. And the House Republicans bill would also make it the purpose of SNAP to be about assisting households in obtaining employment, um, which is a bit odd because about two-thirds of SNAP participants are people who we wouldn't expect to work. They're children, they're seniors, or they're people with disabilities. Um, over the weekend, there has also been some new reporting that House Republicans may be making um, some additional demands um, that are outside of what they passed in that debt ceiling bill, bill back in April to limit states' ability to waive the harsh work reporting requirement in areas where there are insufficient jobs available. Um, that's the topic that you were talking to Joseph about that the Trump administration proposed to do through, um, through regulation back in 2019. Um, those waivers are a longstanding state option in SNAP that have been used by red states and blue states alike to respond to local labor market conditions. Um, the Trump administration's proposed rule, which was um, ultimately halted by the courts, would have removed about 700,000 people from SNAP. Um, and I think I would argue that that's likely an underestimate. Um, and if you think about it, um, even if you are someone who's ideologically um, supportive of SNAP's work reporting requirement, it doesn't really make sense to require someone to work in a job that doesn't exist in order to keep receiving food assistance. Um, another thing that they are proposing in their debt ceiling bill, which is outside of SNAP, but that does affect federal food assistance programs, are um, pretty austere spending caps on discretionary spending um, over the next decade that could result in very deep cuts to another federal nutrition program, um, which is the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, or WIC. WIC, right. Um, and we are already seeing, yep, we are already seeing in the Agriculture Appropriations Bill that House Republicans released last week that they are significantly shortchanging WIC funding by about $800 million, which would mean that about 5 million WIC participants would receive significantly lower benefits next year if that were to become law. So there's a lot in the debt ceiling discussion, and I think the situation seems very fluid, um, but we are certainly very concerned about um, many of the policies that are coming up in that, uh, in that discussion, not just related to federal food assistance, but also other programs that support low-income families like TANF and Medicaid. Thank you for that. I'm glad you mentioned a WIC, of course, the companion program. Um, so that's very important. Um, well, maybe we'll hear this week. Supposedly they're meeting uh, today, and uh, we'll see what happens. Let's go to, uh, alternatively, what advocates of the program are proposing. So, for example, not surprisingly, one of the proposals is to continue with the pandemic-era expanded uh, benefits or that they be made permanent. Um, the one I'm particularly interested, if we can work this in, and this is the uh, this is a critical component to understanding SNAP. But this is the thrifty food plan uh, provision. There are other suggestions relative to uh, reintroducing universal free school meals. I think a few states actually have already passed that legislation. But again, if you could summarize uh, how the program from the advocates' perspective could be improved. 
Yeah, so I will say from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities perspective, um, I want to say at the front end, SNAP is an incredibly effective and efficient program that is um, one of our most powerful anti-poverty and anti-hunger tools. Um, but that does not mean it's a perfect program. And as you mentioned, there are a couple of different ways where the program could be improved. Um, and as we think about where those opportunities are, um, we tend to think about three different areas. Um, the first is on access to the program. Um, despite the fact that SNAP reaches about 42 million Americans, there are um, some number of low-income food insecure people who aren't participating in SNAP, either because they are eligible, but they face very significant um, bureaucratic hurdles to actually getting connected to benefits, or because they belong to a category of people that are fully excluded from SNAP eligibility. So to give one example, um, there is a, at the federal level, a lifetime disqualification on SNAP eligibility for people who have been convicted of a drug-related felony. Uh, many states um, have um, opted to eliminate that um, barrier or modify it in some way, but that is still a very significant access barrier that keeps low-income food insecurity low-income food insecure people um, from accessing benefits that would help them afford groceries. Um, the second category of policies, and this is what you alluded to when you referenced the Thrifty Food Plan, is benefit adequacy. We want to make sure that when people are connected to SNAP, the benefits that they receive are actually adequate enough to, to get them the nutritionally um, adequate, healthy diet that they need. Um, and again, going back to the Thrifty Food Plan, as you mentioned, um, the, the Biden administration has actually taken a pretty significant step forward in ensuring that SNAP benefits are adequate with a recent revision to the Thrifty Food Plan. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with what the Thrifty Food Plan is, um, it's a market basket of foods that provide um, an adequately nutritious diet at minimal cost. And that's the basis for the SNAP benefit calculation and determining how much families actually receive on their EBT card. Um, that Thrifty Food Plan had not been meaningfully reevaluated or updated for almost 50 years. Um, it had just been adjusted for inflation. But our, what we know about how families shop for and prepare food and dietary guidance has changed a lot in that time. And essentially what that meant is that SNAP benefits um, were not adequate, um, did not reflect the realities of what families were experiencing when they were shopping at the grocery store and trying to pre prepare food at home. Um, and what the Biden administration did, based on a congressional directive in the bipartisan 2018 Farm Bill, was reevaluate that, the Thrifty Food Plan, and that resulted in a modest but meaningful um, increase in SNAP benefits for every SNAP participant. Um, on average, um, this year it's increasing the average per person per day SNAP benefit, which I mentioned is about $6 per person per mm -hmm. day. Um, it increased that from about $4.75. So on the scale of an individual, um, not a ton of money, <laughs> um, but, but still very meaningful in um, addressing food insecurity and hunger. Um, by our estimates, that lifted about 2.4 million people, including a million children, out of poverty. Um, so that is a huge step forward on benefit adequacy. Um, we've heard some skepticism um, from some congressional Republicans about that um, revision to the Thrifty Food Plan um, because SNAP is a large program, and unfortunately so many people qualify for help through SNAP. Um, increasing benefits can come with a pretty hefty price tag, but I would argue lifting a million kids out of, of 
poverty is is an investment worth making, um, which isn't to say that SNAP benefits are perfectly adequate. I think there's certainly things to do um, to make sure that um, the, the deductions that participants are able to claim in the very complicated SNAP um, benefit calculation um, really reflect the, the costs that they and expenses that they have and some other things. But but that thrifty food plan revision that the, the Biden administration made was very significant. Um, and the third category of things, I forgot I was doing a list of three, <laughs> are, are kind of um, uh, customer service and modernization things. Um, we want to make sure that the program is staying uh, modern and accountable to participants. We want to make sure that states are being held accountable and making sure that people have access to the program, um, you know, that they're not stuck um, waiting, trying to get through to someone on a call center for hours or days at a time, and making sure that the participant experience of accessing benefits is really centered in how um, the program's success is measured. So that's the final bucket. But um, th that's kind of what advocates in general, I think it's fair to say, are looking for as well. Great. Thank you. Let me ask this a follow-up or related question. Do you, there must be estimates, so I'll, I'll put you on the spot. Do you know offhand, what is, if we say 42 million Americans participate, um, I'm sure, as you suggested, and as we know, most of these programs, they're undersubscribed. I mean, the Medicaid program is substantially undersubscribed. So what's your sense, or do you know, if those who qualify, if everyone who qualified for SNAP participated, how much larger would the 42 million number be? Yeah, so unfortunately, I'm not good enough at mental math to give you a, a number off the top of my head. But I will say that SNAP is one of the programs, is actually um, does pretty well in terms of program access for people who are eligible. Um, typically, about 80% of people who are eligible for SNAP um, do qualify, do access those benefits. Um, so obviously, there, there's some number of people who are, are not accessing those benefits. Um, the groups that tend to participate at lower um, levels, even though they're, um, they are eligible, are groups like older adults. Um, people on fixed incomes um, tend to receive pretty low benefits, um, and sometimes it's not worth it to them to go through all of the, the paperwork and bureaucratic barriers just to get, you know, the minimum benefit right now is $23 a month. Um, so seniors tend to participate at lower levels. Um, another category that tends to participate at low levels are um, eligible non-citizens, which is a very, very narrow category of people, but particularly um, U.S. citizen children who have um, non-citizen people in their household. Um, they participate at much lower levels than other categories of households. Um, and some of that is due to um, fear and concern about how that could potentially impact their immigration status, mm -hmm. um, which has been enhanced following the Trump administration's um, rules around public charge. Um, so another, another concerning thing is that, that those people are participating at low levels. Okay, thank you again. Since I noted at the top one in four children, I'm assuming most listeners know this. The U.S. has one of the highest childhood poverty rates in the country. Uh, if you look at any list of rich countries, we're bottom 10, 15 percent. Uh, so let's, let's since you mentioned the Biden administration's efforts, the Biden administration hosted uh, last late last summer a White House hunger conference. I looked this up. This was the first such conference in 53 years or since... I believe it was the Johnson administration. Um, subsequently, the administration proposed or made some promises um, and that they received pledges from everyone from private companies, medical associations, pharma, a film studio, 
philanthropic foundations, universities, NGOs, and others, in some an $8 billion pledge to end hunger and diet-related disease by 2030. So not surprisingly, the Biden administration had a hunger conference, you know, months before the farm bill year was was to ensue. Uh, what's your take on the hunger conference and uh, to the extent it'll have legs, what, what effect it'll have on as we go forward with um, moving farm bill legislation? Yeah, so I think the White House uh, Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health was um, a really special opportunity to highlight um, a ver- some very important issues. Obviously, um, our organization pays much more close attention to the hunger side of the equ- hunger and health side of the equation than the the diet re- related diseases. But all things that um, should be elevated in high level policy conversations and paid close attention to. Um, I think. In terms of how um, the conference will play out in a farm bill con- uh, conversation, um, policymakers were in Congress were involved in the, co- the conference. The conference actually originated in um, a piece of legislation um, that was bipartisan. Um, I think what, what's hard to say is the extent to which it would really be reflected in the farm bill. And we're, we're still early on in the farm bill mm-hmm. process um, at this point. Um, the congressional agriculture committees are still kind of in an information gathering and due diligence phase where they're holding hearings and hearing from stakeholders and experts and, you know, out around the country doing listening sessions. Um, so we don't really have a good public indication yet about how each chamber is approaching their farm bill process. Although I can say, um, I do think the debt ceiling conversation is a good indicator of where some of House Republicans' priorities lie. So uh, you worked uh, for the Senate uh, Committee on Agriculture for several years under Senator from Michigan, Debbie Stabenow. Uh, So you're an expert on the process, as your answer just suggested. Uh, So let me me probe a little bit further. Um, What do you, do you see it moving this? I'm assuming there'll be hearings. Do you see it coming to a a vote uh, this calendar year? Uh, Could you say more about the process? Yeah, so um, I, w- I will say I, d- I don't have a particular crystal ball here, but uh, the current farm bill, which is the farm bill that passed back in 2018, expires on se- yep, it expires on September 30th of this year. Um, I think given that the debt ceiling conversation is certainly weighing heavily in like future farm bill dynamics, um, there's there's going to be a lot of work to do to get um, a bill done and signed by the president before that September 30th deadline. I think it is more likely that um, a final bill will slip a little bit later in the calendar. Um, You know, if you compare the process this time to what was happening in 2018, um, at this point in the calendar, the House Agriculture Committee had already marked up a bill and was getting ready to move it to the floor. Um, So potentially a little bit behind where we were in 2018, um, but hard to say exactly um, when we might see a, a public bill start to advance in either chamber. Okay, thank you. Uh, and you did work, obviously, on the 18 uh, Farm Bill. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would assume, I did ask about hearings. I know this is crystal ball as well, but I'm assuming we'll see some, uh, if not several, hearings, I would hope. Yes, yeah, so this Congress, um, the Senate Agriculture Committee has had several hearings on nutrition programs. Um, 
my boss, the vice president for food assistance programs at the center, testified at, at a recent subcommittee hearing on the Senate side. Um, I think the the House has been going kind of title by title through various farm bill programs and has not hold, held a hearing on nutrition programs yet. Um, but I would anticipate that that's that's on the agenda for for a farm bill review, um, setting them up for releasing a committee bill. Well, I'll just throw in one editorial comment here. Uh, I, I did notice that since the 18 farm bill, um, or since 2018, one third of the current members of Congress were elected. So a substantial mm-hmm. number of Congress have no farm bill experience, and I'm hoping that might be a good thing because um, there's various ways to interpret that. So with that, uh, Katie, <laughs> very good overview. Obviously, you're well-studied and expert. Uh, I will commend uh, CBPP for their work uh, on this subject. You have a staff in this uh, area, I notice, of about eight or ten uh, professionals. So you do a lot of substantive uh, work. Uh, listeners, I encourage, I'll put the website, but I'll encourage listeners if they're interested to follow uh, your memos and reporting uh, on this subject. So with that, I'll say thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.